Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 17th, 2022. It is Purim, and it is St. Patrick's Day, which gives me an opportunity to tell my favorite Yogi Berra anecdote. I've told it before. I'm going to tell it again. Yogi Berra, upon being told that the mayor of Dublin, Bobby Briscoe, was Jewish, said, only in America. That is the great Purim St. Patrick's Day one-liner. I've now given it to you. Please enjoy. Pass it on to your friends or roll your eyes because you've heard me say it before. You've also heard me say before that we are going to be in South Florida, in Palm Beach, on April 6th, doing the podcast live with special guest Dan Senor. That's Noah, Abe, Christine, uh, and I, and Dan Senor, and maybe, maybe another special guest or two. It's hard to know. Um, go to commentary.org slash live podcast for more details. You can come and just watch. You can come to a meet and greet, or you can come to a VIP dinner. These are three levels of participation. You'll be around other commentary listeners, commentary readers, a real chance to experience the commentary community in South Florida with us on April 6th, commentary.org slash live podcast. And here they are, the live podcasters podcasting today as they will be podcasting then. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, there is a, an, a staggering, astounding, and almost uh, mind-blowing uh, statistic number in the New York Times in a story that was released last night stated very flatly uh, that uh, 7,000 Russian troops have died in Ukraine. Let's just uh, let's just uh, back back off. They, they, you can do that because you can tell by the number of damaged or destroyed apparently from the air if you're doing an assessment. You know how many people it takes to run a tank. You see how many tanks have been destroyed. You see some various other other forms of intelligence. So the uh, general estimates, the Russians say something like 900 people have died. The Ukrainians say 15,000 people have died. It is apparently our estimation or calculation, Western intelligence services, that about 7,000 Russians have died. The invasion force is around 150,000, I believe. Um, you know the word decimate? So the word decimate, which comes from, uh, you know, basically Caesar's armies. Decimate does not mean to destroy utterly. It means to kill 10% of the opponent's army is to decimate the army. Not 100%, 10%, decimate. So the Russians are halfway toward the decimation of their invasion force in three weeks. This is just, along with, is it three or four generals whom we now know to have been killed in, in Ukraine over the last, over, you know, since the invasion began western intelligence estimates three uh ukraine three. says four <clears throat> we, right n- nobody really knows but also john 10 percent of their uh, heavy equipment so uh, in part of so, that so that's already western been estimate. decimated right okay, and, so, and, you, and you have to count wounded casualties uh, yeah. who, who are not who haven't been killed yeah and battlefield uh, math is roughly th- three casualties for every fatality Right. I think I think it's said they think that it's between 14 and 21,000 injured. Um, and uh, there's also some sort of rule of thumb that you start getting to a point at which uh, the, the casualty numbers mean that there is no 
efficient way to move forward uh, because you're dealing with, you know, having to to uh, manage your losses and uh, have other people do things like drive the tanks that already exist if other you know people are injured and 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 where where the reinforcements going to come from and all of that point here is that um this is like you know staggering i think somebody pointed out that in is it 44 days on on iwo jima uh the the united states didn't lose 7000 people or maybe lost 10000 people or something like that in 44 days this is, hasn't even been 21 days and it's not an isolated island in which the enemy has the upper hand. You know what I mean? So I, I when you have a 10 man plan and the 10th man isn't there, the plan doesn't work. It doesn't right. sound very like operationally incapacitating, just having, you know, a 10, 10% of your forces gone, but it actually is because invasion force is like choreographing a halftime show. Everybody's got a role to play and they're all a critical. And when one's gone, the plan doesn't work. Well, and they're making really uh, bungling amateur strategic mistakes. I mean, the, one of the speculations about how Ukraine has been able to take out a few of their generals is that the generals are communicating on unencrypted channels. The Ukrainians are able to then triangulate their location and attack. I mean, this is basic. They should not be communicating with, with each other. Right, that was actually a they, big problem in 2008 in uh, Georgia. And they were told during the modernization process over the last decade that they'd, they'd fixed a lot of these issues and apparently um the general staff was just feeding putin a whole bunch of lies about the modernization of the equipment the you know the modernization of tactics and strategies and definitely plugging these holes like communicating on unencrypted channels in a war zone i i mean it 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 almost beggars you know it almost beggars belief because of course ever since world war ii when after world war ii when it it when the world discovered that we had broken the German cipher and that, you know, we, we, we knew, you know, we were able to follow their, uh, you know, we knew everything they were saying. Um, uh, people have take, gone to extraordinary measures to make sure that doesn't can't and doesn't happen again, <laughs> again um, through the development of ever more sophisticated ciphering and, and you know, and, and, uh, that kind of thing you hear on, you know, some podcast ads about how it would take a billion years for somebody to, you know, break through this programming or that programming. And, um, and yeah, so they're just using their, their phones because they don't want another phone or maybe they weren't issued another phone or maybe like they don't know where they're going to get the other guy's phone number. I mean, some people do do very interesting. It's like stu the stupid criminal stuff, you know, all that stuff that is funny, but you can sort of understand it's the deepest aspect of human nature. You know, the guy who was involved in the first World Trade Center bombing who then tried to return the rental truck, who went to return the rental truck, and that's how they that's how they broke who had who had who had gone and 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 you know uh, set the bomb off in the basement of the of the World Trade Center in 1993. I mean, there's something like, well, it's my cell phone. I got it. I mean, I've got to call, you know, I've got to call Dimitri and, you know, I just look it up and I, you know, I search and I type in Dimitri and then I call his number. Like how, how bad, how, what's the problem? You know, it's like, it, it's almost as though you don't know, uh, particularly if you're feeling 
insecure, nervous or something like that, like you default to this to comfort, which is like, well, it's my phone. It's got all my numbers. It's got all my phone numbers in it. Um, and it, it does, you know, it does suggest again, again, like how little commitment, I think if you sort of take it as a novelistic detail, how little commitment there is on the part of everybody as you know below Putin to this to this exercise like they are not dotting i's and crossing t's and being meticulous and being wildly careful and all of that like they're doing this grudgingly in some fashion even though it, what this means is that they're getting themselves killed but there's a kind of almost unconscious resistance to doing the things the incredibly inconvenient things that are involved in maintaining operational secrecy you know, which are, you know, I mean, everybody's read spy novel. I don't want to use novels as the example, but, you know, if you read a really good spy novel, it's like every time somebody has to meet somebody else, they have to walk for three and a half hours and go, you know, in five different, you know, just, you know, it's the boring aspect of being safe and secure, right? And then they're clearly not, not, not doing that. It's just an interesting and why you have to ask yourself because they don't want to be there or because like, you know, because they're, they're not doing it for themselves, even though they're the ones who are going to suffer from it. Well, that's also, say, oh, go ahead. I was just want to say, well, that's to say nothing of the, the, the anecdotes about the Russian soldiers just giving up altogether. Right. Yeah. Um, just leave abandoning their vehicles and walking away. We've been hearing those from the start. Well, and, and I do think a lot of it is also what, what Noah flagged uh, earlier, which is this, what has Putin been told by his uh, military leadership? He is not a military leader. Remember, this guy's KG, former KGB. It's a very different set of skills. Um, and what has he been told about readiness, about capability that might be a lie? This is this is always the problem in, in autocracies, right? The sort of internal rot goes all the way to the top and people out of fear will say something to allow their own survival that actually long term has implications for, for their ability to, to continue, certainly in this case on the battlefield. Look, I mean, you know, again, World War II, you know, we were not, you know, we, we, had, we had sort of built up our forces and stuff like that, but we kind of had to build an army to fight World War II after we were in World War II, you know, and, and this uh, mobile is unprecedented mobilization of America's industrial resources to essentially build planes, tanks, ships, this, that, and the other thing from a standing start in December, 1941, practically remains kind of like the most astonishing, I don't know, like deployment of resources in human history done with this unbelievable speed. Um, you know, and so, you know, we were sort of losing the war in the Pacific until we built the machinery that allowed us to win the war in the Pacific, and there is there is Putin, who has now decided to fight, um, and uh, you know, a very serious conventional war. How is and and will you know? Let's say they learn something about how they're fighting it wrong. How much time do they have to turn it around and fight it right? They don't have an industrial plant that can you know ramp up and build all this stuff. The country is a shambles, is an economic shambles in in general, um, and so you know that's the whole point about it not being a first rank economic power or something like that you know it's like it, it had its it had this shot it you you know it sort of used an enormous amount of its military force to go into ukraine and it's being you know it's being systematically destroyed ruined wrecked sabotaged where does he go for the second wave and if he goes for the second wave how does he replace all that equipment 
that needs to be elsewhere for you know for his own needs i i, I don't know it's just i i mean well the assumption this, is that he can't and that's why this is so dangerous is because right. the that's you know, the alternative is to use uh as we talked about yesterday perhaps unconventional weapons to escalate to de-escalate or a very conventional assault with uh long-range artillery and strategic bombing um they had a lot of obstacles in their path for to use strategic bombing including the fact that 80 percent of ukraine's air force is still active and their air defenses are the second best in europe as we have witnessed over the course of this campaign so their options are limited but artillery is always always an option and they have um, probably as many artillery shells as you can possibly imagine, and they can use it to level population centers, and that's where we're concerned that this is going. Well, we're, well they so, struck uh, yesterday. There was this um, this uh, theater in Mariupol that was uh, struck was deliberately struck, um, and it, it, they'd written kid, they'd written children yeah, in yeah, Russian yeah. out on the field on either right. side. So to you can see it from literally from space. Uh, hard, to, hard to ignore. Um, that was clearly a, a civilian center. And we don't know what their intelligence was on the ground, whether they think, you know, maybe there were uh, insurgents hiding there, or what have you. It's hard to hard to say. But, you know, the simplest explanation is usually the most likely explanation. And the simplest explanation is that it's a terror war designed to terrorize people into submission. And so you hit a shelter full of children. And we expect to see a lot more of that. And you know, Putin's going to say today that the that the uh, that the Ukrainians did it themselves. I mean, that, that literally blowing up a theater. Apparently, to, you know, uh, there were more more survivors more survivors than than casualties or fatalities. So this bomb shelter was apparently very effective. Uh -huh. um, so if the Ukrainians did blow themselves up, they did a really terrible job at it. No, I'm just saying that, you know, he that's the whole thing is that, um, you know, he then has he then has this uh, stream of uh, of, uh, you know, propagandistic nonsense about fifth columns and infiltrators and all of that, that he's peddling on a daily basis. You know, as Zelensky was speaking yesterday before Congress, he was giving a speech to the apparently to the Russian people. Um, to the Russian you know, people aimed at the Russian diaspora, um, the the rich, uh, you know, people, rich Russians living abroad. Oligarchs is a bad term for it because people don't really understand what oligarchs are. They don't mean rich people. It's not the same thing. These are people who live uh, as a result of the largesse provided to them by the state. Oligarchs were originally the people who benefited from the privatization of Russian industry, just swallowed up whole industry. You know, you yeah, get Russian 90s, gas, before, you get Russian before, steel, before you get Putin. Russian aluminum. Yeah. Right. But so these are the beneficiaries of that system who are devoid, devoid of most power. Many of them live abroad. So he's giving this insane speech that it fully incorporates a lot of the nationalistic rhetoric that we hear from nationalist movements in the West. Um, really heavy on class envy, uh, really heavy on um, reactionary rhetoric about social justice movements, you know, lambasting people who, who uh, are living abroad and, uh, and you know, feasting on, on the uh, foie gras and oysters and living on, uh, enjoying their so-called gender freedoms on the French Riviera. Um, it's, it was unhinged, unnervingly so, uh, but also if it was calibrated at all, calibrated to appeal to a, a nationalistic element in the West that uses the same language to describe their domestic political adversaries. 
Well, and this is going to create a problem for him because all those very wealthy uh, Russians who took over those national industries in the 90s and have they and their families have been rich, have spent the last several decades also learning how to hide their money. They have mistresses with like $40 million apartments in Paris. They have, you know, second families in Canada who have sunk all their money in real estate. They know how to hide ill-gotten gains. They've been doing it for decades. And actually part of this, hopefully part of the long-term silver lining of this conflict is going to be international financial institutions going after that kind of money and finding out how they hide it. I mean, we do that already here in in, uh, the US, but in Europe, they're, you know, they're seizing the yachts, they're doing all that, which is very public, but there is so much hidden ill-gotten gain in Europe right now and uh, that's scattered all over the world. And though shaming those people for their wealth is not a very good tactic if you actually want them to to send some of it back to Russia, which he will need them to do. Particularly since so much of that wealth is obviously going to get seized, particularly in Europe by the governments, uh, which have decided that they're uh, apparently uh, not going to follow the niceties of rule of law or contract and are just going to, you know, are going to do, you know, asset forfeiture uh, on on these people and their mistresses and and, and, and stuff like that. But Abe, what, um, what, what was the yeah. pr- purpose of the Putin speech? That That's what I can't figure out. He, I mean, he needs to keep the I that he needs to keep the flame burning that it is Russia against the world and that Russia is uh, Russia is preserving its own greatness and doing what is necessary against these drug addicted Nazis in in Kiev, um, uh, saving uh, saving the seat and the heart of the great Russian people uh, from time immemorial from drug addicked Nazis running it's the Western running decadence the stuff. It, it reminded me of Cold War rhetoric. Remember the Soviet Union talking about Western decadence and weakness? It had that yeah. tone. Right. So uh, that's why. But um, I think the danger, you know, no, you 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 elucidated the danger uh, of uh, of a more desperate Putin without an ability to to advance on the ground and, and you know, do sort of a more you know conventional occupation effort um, and talking about, you know, aerial bombing and all of that. And that, of course, is one danger. And then there's the even more terrifying danger, which is that he goes whole hog, figures he has nothing to lose. And if he's going to blow up a theater with children in it, why can't he, why can't he, you know, why can't he poison the water? Why can't he, you know, of course, it's weird to poison the water, uh, you know, with chemical weaponry, because if you're going to go in and occupy the place as afterwards, you also need potable water. You know, you need, can't just use chemical weapons and not expect it to affect, you know, the, the, however many tens of thousands of Russians are, you know, in the, in outside the city and, you know, ringed communities. Like we don't, you know, more likely to use an aerosolized agent. Right. But you know where the wind's going to blow. So that's the problem. That's always the problem with unconventional because I blow right back on your troops, you know, so but um, but the more desperate he is, the more, you know, either the more likely that is or the more one will question why he's not uh, the more uh, he will be revealing something about his own ruthlessness or lack thereof or 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 skittishness or whether, you know, as uh, as uh, my father said in his book, Why We Were in Vietnam, um, you know, that he actually went into this fight on the cheap. That in fact, though we look at it and we see this, you know, massive invasion, in fact, he did it on the cheap 
you know, he used his worst soldier, you know, he used his conscripts. I know it's Soviet military doctrine. So what? But I mean, he used his worst conscripts. Uh, they had a bad battle plan. And the reason he had a bad battle plan is they actually don't have the resources to do what he wanted to do. And they, he wasn't committing all the resources that he needed to commit to do this in overwhelming fashion. And that like us, like, like our effort in Vietnam, uh, it was never enough to win. He never, he, he actually did not commit enough forces and enough blood and treasure to win this thing in the first week. And it turns out we were all right to think he better do this in the first week. That that's, what's interesting. It's like, well, he's obviously going to go in and, you know, destroy Kiev with shock and awe the first thing he does to knock the stuffings out of the out of the ukrainian people and get them on their knees but he he didn't do that and maybe he didn't do it because he can't i don't i don't know maybe maybe that wasn't a real possibility or the russians are so enamored of this idea that they are that uh, their own romantic idea of their own survival in world war ii that you know what they are is resilient. What they are is they can hold out. You know, they can they they can grind it out. You know, how long was the siege of Stalingrad? Was it 16 months, 17 months? A hundred thousand people died of starvation. I mean, I'm I I don't even know why I, I laugh there. That's a weird, but I mean the whole point was that you know the great Soviet myth or the great nationalist myth was they can't come in here and we 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 can outlast anybody we can we will sacrifice and suffer for our for our fatherland and our homeland more than anybody else ever will and that that played some weird role in this idea that you know we'll go great, in and then huh one of the great um or most uh, affecting national origin myths uh in russia is um the scorched earth campaign, uh, the retreat to Moscow during right. the Napoleonic in Wars, right, right, which is predicated on the idea that we are we are an, a, a great nation, so great in fact that we will destroy ourselves. Yeah, they set cut ourselves to fire. pieces yeah. and sacrifice yeah. our own people and destroy our own land just so that you can't have it. Right. So if that's actually the if that's actually the so in other words, there there he may be coming up against his own mythos which is like it doesn't matter what happens in the first three weeks because we're gonna we're in this forever but on the other hand i mean there's no way on earth that he could have anticipated uh these numbers and this kind of these 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 kinds of losses i mean as, as these are conservative say, estimates by the way these are we yeah. western estimates yeah and they are conservative the top end estimates are ukrainian which yeah. have it at thirteen thousand battlefield casualties of russian yeah. soldiers and conscripts and then you know the battlefield math being three times that in casualties and then you know how how much equipment is incalculable but it's um it's a lot it's odd that we haven't seen more of it we've seen a lot think? of it well they're taking a lot of the russian dead russian soldiers through belarus right they're just like put them on they're yeah. they're, they're keeping yeah. them away from early in the guys. war the assumption was that this we, what we were privy to couldn't be the true facts of the net of the matter because we were only seeing the Ukrainian side of the story um, because there's a fair bit of Russian discipline when it comes to mobile phone technology. Actually, when it, average soldiers don't they're not allowed to have that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's stories about how you know a, a Russian drill sergeant will see one of his one of his soldiers with a phone and will just put a nail through it in the wall. Like that's they they do have some discipline when it comes to that. So the assumption was that we're only seeing the Ukrainian side because the Ukrainian side is the only one that's not observing any sort of uh, operational discipline here when it comes to information. Um, but the Ukrainian side has been 
broadcasting a whole lot of these images of you know dead dead russians and bbc yeah has it you know dead russians course, on the side of, course, of a field that you know that are just left behind but look the other interesting aspect of this is that you know these are not casualty numbers that are coming in conventional battle right that we haven't had like you know the battle of i mean i know they're firing on cities but it's not like you know, Gettysburg, it's not like there's a battlefield and there are two armies and they're coming, you know, at each other with with bayonets, which is usually where you get, you know, like out, astounding casualty numbers in the history of war is direct head-to-head, soldier-to-soldier conflict. And that's not what's happening here. It appears that the Ukrainians are sort of like picking off the Russians. Now. They're kind of yeah, in the, no, the early days of the invasion, like, there were yeah. there were you know set piece battles that Ukraine definitively lost. You know, Western estimates also right. suggest that Ukrainians have about ninety percent of their uh, combat capacity, combat ready capacity, intact. So they've taken right. as many losses. But they, of course, have this inexhaustible supply of um, civilian uh, volunteers who are at the ready to you know who are at the ready to serve essentially as battlefield participants in the cities should things go that way and the russians of course have to redeploy people to get them back you know i mean there's 44 million ukrainians they are now all in some fashion one way or another implicitly involved in the war right and the russians have a couple hundred thousand people who've come across the border so you know in the long run in the reverse soviet model uh, the Ukrainians are the ones who are who can, you know, pack it in for the for the long run uh, if they're you know and suffer hor- just absolutely nightmarishly horribly while they do so. But it's their country, and they're they got you know aside from the ones who have already left, they got nowhere to go, and they're not going to leave. Obviously, so you know, I just want to say because regarding what we've seen in terms of the fight on media images. Because people have been uh, skeptical, people who are inclined to be skeptical of Zelensky and the Ukrainians been saying, well, has anyone seen any firefights, you know, uh, this, you know, trying to assert that this is, you know, a a misinformation, disinformation campaign much larger than anyone realizes. But if you look back, even on the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you didn't see many, many, uh, sort of ground firefights on, on media, you saw weapons lighting up the sky and buildings exploding. Yeah. And, and of course, because that's situational in terms of reporting, like you right. actually have to have somebody there as stuff happens, who is, you know, uh, uh, brave enough or reckless enough or foolhardy enough mm-hmm. to record what's going on instead of like jumping under a truck and hiding until the, until the, or, you know, going into a basement or something you know, those kind of, uh, that's the only way you're going to see something like that live. So, um, anyway, I think, uh, I just haven't talked actually about reprisals in, in Moscow, which is something that is actually ongoing and, um, and deteriorates their, uh, operational readiness. Um, we've already seen fairly reasonably confirmed reports, uh, that FSB generals are being detained and, um, People within the intelligence services are um, being sacked and have been, you know, removed from their position, what have you, um, and and even possibly in, in imprisoned, although that's not necessarily confirmed. But there are uh, internal reprisals ongoing against the people who supposedly executed this debacle. 
um, which isn't going to do anything for for Russian military readiness. Now, the other important thing is the uh, the meaning of the worldwide support for the Ukrainians. And I think this is an intangible but incredibly powerful matter. Ukraine and the Ukrainians know that the world is on their side. That's like ambrosia and nectar. I mean, that is like they are, you know, they are at the center of the world. They are the most important issue in the world. They are being lionized and celebrated. And even in the midst of their terrible suffering and the horrible damage that is being done and the tragic uh, destruction that is being wrought, that has just, you know, you can't, it's probably hard to imagine the kind of confidence, spirit lightning, uh, uh, and, you know, just general uh, battery energizing that that does for people in these circumstances. Whereas whatever, whatever they know or don't know in Moscow, this they know, which is that nobody is happy. Like Putin is saying nobody's happy. Whatever communications they're getting from people in the West are saying, what the hell are you, what the hell, what's going on there? And uh, they don't know why they're in Ukraine and all of that. And so you then have that effect, which is this kind of grinding. I don't what, you know, uh, you're getting no, uh, you're getting no um, positive reinforcement. And all the Ukrainians are getting is positive reinforcement, the likes of which we haven't seen in our lifetime. I don't think in my lifetime, this kind of, you know, um, you know, Maybe the Israelis in 67, uh, although the Israelis, had already, they got it after they won, you know, but I mean, this is really a kind of staggering thing that's going on. And, you know, the, the strange uh, things in war that that can make a huge difference, you know, and morale is one of them, like morale, which shouldn't be that important, right, next to overwhelming firepower or good strategy or something like that. But but obviously it is and the ukrainians have nothing but morale and the russians probably have you know the opposite of morale whatever the opposite of morale is um so uh let me just stop for a second and talk to you about the x chair you know i've talked to you about it before it's got that lmx massage technology and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for the x chair to heat you up or cool you down depending on what you need, give you a massage and that customized and patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, which supports your lower back like nothing else. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons to love your X chair. So take my advice, try X chair for yourself, risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair can be, you'll never go back. And this week only, X-Chair is holding its special anniversary sale. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair for special anniversary sale pricing. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. That's xchaircommentary.com. And let's talk about Bambi, okay? Because you didn't go and start your small business so you could bother with HR. HR issues can kill you. They distract you. They torment you. Wrongful termination suits, labor regulations, and finding an HR manager salary, that's like 70000 bucks a year in salary. So 
Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E, was created specifically for small business to give you a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, Bambi customizes your policies to fit your business and helps you manage your employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month to month. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime. Let Bambi help you. Didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E dot com slash commentary spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, so, guys, uh, the last week there have been these um, uh, incredibly horrifying and bizarre crime stories. I mean, I guess the 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 biggest one or the one that is the most sort of um, almost like out of a really bad movie, right, is this um, uh, mentally ill 30-year-old guy who went from New York to Washington uh, killing homeless people, Um Mr. Brevard, uh, whose father was desperately trying to get him committed to a mental institution because he knew that he was very sick and he kept getting released. He's been arrested three or four times. Um, and, uh, you know, there's that. There's the story of the of the Asian woman who was punched 125 times. Uh, we have um, this story of the 87-year-old a uh, voice coach, Broadway voice coach, who was walking up Third uh, Avenue, and a well-dressed white woman in her 30s pushed her to the ground, cracked her skull open, and she died yesterday. And the, you know, there's a manhunt looking for this woman who does not, from the video footage, you know, appear she's well-dressed, you know, in a kind of, I don't know, what I would have called like some sort of post Annie Hall, I, you know, just kind of like peasant clothing, um, and, you know, from the video, not looking like somebody who would, would do such a thing. And on the, on the flip side, uh, the flip side of the criminal justice coin, we have the jaw dropping release yesterday afternoon or yesterday evening uh, with a one page release him statement from the uh, from an appellate court in Illinois releasing uh, Jesse Smollett after Smollett after his uh, you know conviction and sentencing for 150 days for the hate crime hoax that he perpetrated in Chicago costing the city a couple hundred thousand dollars and creating a national scandal about how uh, MAGA wearing um, rednecks uh, were going around searching for black people to put a noose around their necks uh doing so because he wanted a better deal from his tv show empire um you know something that uh, had uh, most of the senior democratic leadership in the united states expressing reservoirs of sympathy for him and outrage at, at the horrors of his treatment and and celebrating his wondrous uh, courage and 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 nobility and of course this was all made up he hired these guys to do it to him um uh, to 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 run this uh, con with him, and uh, and the minute that he was sentenced and told he had to serve this five months in jail, uh, he said, uh, "I'm not suicidal. Uh, don't don't blame me." Meaning something's going to happen to me in jail. His lawyer said he could get COVID. He could get COVID in jail, 
And apparently the main grounds for his release pending his appeal is that it, by the time he was able to appeal, uh, since he was remanded to the immediate custody of the Cook County Jail, uh, he would have served his sentence. And therefore it would be unjust because not that this was stated exactly, but but you know he would already have served it. So if he could appeal, he should stay out of jail until his appeal is exhausted. I have no idea on what conceivable grounds he has for appeal. Uh, uh, the only grounds he seems to have is that Kim Fox, the evil uh, prosecutor who didn't want to prosecute him in the first place, said that this was some kind of exceptional, you know, they, there was like selective prosecution of him. Paul Butler in the Washington Post said, this is what they do to black men. Yeah, like black men who who are who are television stars who walk around claiming that people tried to, to lynch them when it's five degrees below zero and two o'clock in the morning uh in you know in basically a industrial business district in chicago near a near a subway um or a 7-eleven i can't remember it's which. amazing that you know something either kim fox or or you now this 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 appeal argument something always has to come in swoop in and sort of keep him out of jail it's like the the progressive narrative can't handle the reality of him actually um, being having having justice meted out and him going to jail, it would sort of you know upset the the fundamental nature of their universe too much. Well, See, and that's why they didn't oh, yeah, they didn't look when they were running for president and vice president, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and then later the woman who they appointed to head the Office for Civil Rights of the Department of Justice, all had these you know tweets which got tons of play and retweeted over and over again about how poor Jesse blah blah blah. They never retracted that. They never corrected that. Those tweets are still available if you want to go and look at them. That I I do think there's some weird form of denial. I think you're right, Abe. the The other thing that's interesting to me is that. This seems strikes me as one of the perfect examples of where our justice system is likely uh, uh, biased, but it's not against black men. It's pro celebrity. If you're wealthy and well connected, you can get off on a lot of charges regardless of your race. There are plenty of African, yeah, yeah. There are plenty of African American gay celebrity, right? But there are plenty of black men who get railroaded every day because they yeah. don't have good representation. The public right. defenders crap. You know, they don't actually gather evidence to, to help them mount a real defense. That happens every day. If you want to be Paul Butler claiming to, you know, speak for the black man, why don't you talk about those guys, not defend Jesse Smollett? And he even says, "Well, I mean, obviously he's guilty, but." Let's yeah. make a ton of excuses for him. And that's the part where the excuse making in the justice system right now is driving law abiding citizens crazy. Because okay, they, they, they can't yeah. let go. Just really, they can't let go entirely of the idea that he's a victim. He did some wrong things, but right. he's a no, victim. now he's a victim of selective prosecution like right. nobody else would have been. Well, what? There is no case like this. I mean, there is no comparable case to say that, a, you know, uh, a white person, you know, staged a hate crime and then, you know, no, so those happen. Those dad. happen too. And no, no. they tend to get prosecuted oh, balloon, and the people boy. go to balloon prison. Boy dad who yeah. went yeah. to jail. That's right. Okay. But here's no, but there the was a white I woman. There was a white woman recently who claimed to have been abducted by, you know, some minority. Yeah. This does happen and they okay. do get sent to jail and right. we do not see celebrities and presidents defending them. Fair enough. Okay. Now I bring this up together. These two phenomena the uh, sort of this um the horrifying crimes that are being committed now openly and in public still we're you know two years after the pandemic 
the pandemic unleashed something really awful uh, in, in terms of urban criminality that we're, we're, we're only beginning to start trying to make some kind of psychological sense out of. And we don't know what the public policy effects of bail reform and progressive prosecutors announcing they're not going to convict people. What 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 that has done in contributing to an atmosphere in which criminality and lawlessness seems to be far more public and far more um, blatant and kind of outrageous and uh, and and untrammeled and and uh, uh, than than it was before. And um, I bring this up because I have a piece in the April commentary, uh, which uh, I call Neoconservatism of Vindication. Um, and it's up online at commentary.org. You can read it there. And uh, it's about Ukraine. I mean, it's about sort of uh, the, the arguments that were being made by uh foreign policy neoconservatives in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, and the arguments of the neoconservatives who were writing about domestic policy and domestic affairs, particularly in regard to these issues surrounding uh, order, um, safety, and violence. And what I after many years of thinking about this and trying to make sense of what was distinctive about neoconservatism, watching the debate and thinking about what, what happened, uh, why Putin went into Ukraine when he went into Ukraine and why this crime surge is happening, it then struck me that both sides of neoconservatism, the foreign policy that's centered on Commentary Magazine and the domestic neoconservatism policy stuff that's centered at, at the public interest, the magazine edited by um, Irving Kristol and, and Nathan Glazer uh, uh, that was sort of uh, extant for um, about 30 years from 65 to 95 or something like that. Um, what they had in common was uh, a, a vision of human nature that said that bad actors, the way to deal with bad actors is to adopt the policy of deterrence that um, and that we had gone beyond a policy of deterrence both in foreign and domestic policy in which we were not attempting to deter bad action by bad actors but rather to deal with it after it happened crime in the united states went to 911 policing in the 1960s which was literally a way of saying Police will only get involved after a crime is reported or, 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 or an incident has already happened. And so they will stay in their cars and they will go where they are radioed to go rather than be a physical presence on the streets, uh, a, a, a deterrent presence that they are there in force, walking the beat, doing stuff like that, and that their presence or flooding the zone with a bunch of cops and all of that then serves to make to ensure that people find the possibility of committing a crime too high risk and will therefore avoid the doing the crime at all and this then creates greater public safety for everybody who is just going along and trying to live their daily lives and that in changing from that idea of deterrence in crime fighting to 911 policing or responding to crime as it already existed part of the reason that happened was that the focus of liberal criminology and progressive thinking in the 60s and 70s moved 
toward the injustices being done either to groups or to criminals or in, in, a, in a system in which cops were corrupt and prisons were terrible and horrible things were happening in Attica. And we really needed to do something where the, um, where the rights of the criminal weren't being denied uh, so horribly unjustly. And in so focusing, you then lost deterrence and you, start, you stopped focusing on the fact that the sole purpose of social organization is to prevent the praying, criminal praying on people who follow the rules. That is, that is Hobbes 101. That is social organization 101, that we come together to protect ourselves collectively from those who would do us harm and that we surrender some of our right. We surrender some of our, you know, ultimate libertarian freedoms to that aim because it is the only way to live successfully among other people. And internationally, exactly the same thing happened with the Soviets. We lost deterrence. We were more interested in managing our relationship with them and making them part of the community of nations or, or, or accepting or acceding to the fact that they wanted to be a nuclear power and to express themselves um, and, and, uh, and all of that. Uh, we lost our deterrent effect and uh, with the loss in Vietnam and other places, um, uh, the Soviets began to march forward quite relentlessly in the late 1970s. They insisted on an arms control treaty that would have enshrined their superiority in the number of nuclear warheads, the SALT II Treaty. They were backing revolutionary groups in Angola, in, in South America, and then, of course, they invaded and uh, they invaded Afghanistan uh, at the end of 1979. And the loss of deterrence is the is the glue that binds these two together and that neoconservatism this much derided much insulted much um, much goaded uh caricatured intellectual tendency is actually relatively modest in scope it's not utopian let's bring freedom to the planet over a hundred years it is if we can deter the bad guys if we can create a space in which the bad guys don't get to do bad things or the, or the cost of them doing bad things is raised to an unacceptable level so they decide it's not worth the candle to do it, you open a space where all kinds of wonderful things can happen. Uh, we don't know what they are. We don't know what, they're, what, what form they're going to take. But at the very least, you're going to make life more livable for the people who are in their neighborhood. And at the most you're going to see renaissances of, of, of civil order in, in other places. That's what happened when uh, we never thought, you know, we never thought the Soviet, the wall, we never thought the Soviet Union was going to collapse. Neoconservative, the utopians never really believed that that would ever happen. Nobody really believed that there was going to be a crime drop, but it was this assertion that we needed to do something to deter bad actors that, that, uh, burrowed itself into the body politic with a lot of argumentation over many, many years and stuff that seemed like science fictional, like Charles Murray's losing ground saying, you know, what would really be better for poor people is if we ended the lifetime guarantee of welfare. That's not doing them good. That was 1984. It seemed science fictional. And then 12 years later, Bill Clinton signed welfare reform because that argument went public. It was serious. It, it, was, it was supported on 10,000 different sides, similarly with the crime drop and ideas about how 
to do policing and public order and public safety differently. And, you know, there's, there's another uh, un, unheralded victory here. Um, how about the fact that there never was another 9-11? There was, there was never another terrorist attack on that scale uh, on the U.S. In the days and weeks and months after 9-11, I think we all kind of thought there would be. Um, and all the forward-leaning efforts and the Patriot Act and our, and our military actions abroad that have come to be so derided are the reason why. Well, there's a perfect example of the things that really annoy people. And they annoy everybody. They annoy the hell out of everybody. What people call security theater, right? Still, you know, depending on the airport, you take off your shoes, you do this, you do that. It all seems like a nightmare and like a wild overreaction now that it's 20 years after 9-11. Why are we still doing this? But actually, the purpose of it was, again, to raise the cost of being somebody who might try to walk into an airport with bad intentions in mind, that you knew you were going to have to go through this gauntlet. You were going to have to travel this gauntlet of of inconvenience and annoyance, and you were probably going to get caught. I mean, you may have had a 10 or 15% chance of sneaking through. And of course, famously, the shoe bomber snuck through, which is why it's 20 years later and we are still taking off our shoes in airports. But again, it's raising the cost to an unacceptable level so that the crime is not committed or so that the idea of perpetrating the crime is dropped as being inconvenient and and, and essentially like a pointless effort because it will be interdicted before it even begins. Doesn't This does depend on having a healthy uh, two-party combative political system. And by that, I mean, in I live in a city that doesn't have that. We are one-party rule through and through. We have been for decades. And there is no will on the, even though citizens are saying we're upset about crime, there's all this theft, there's like, you know, stores being, you know, robbed of stuff and nobody stops them. There's carjackings, a lot of juvenile crime, a lot of violence. And two things are happening at the same time. Our progressive city council and democratic mayor are all saying it's not as bad as you think. And at the same time, they're raising the level of juvenile crime, for example, to 26. So if you're under 26 years old and you commit a violent act or, you know, carjack someone or rob someone at gunpoint, you're still considered a child, Um, which is ridiculous, you know, at, at the very moment where we need to be doing what you said, John, making it clear to people who want to commit criminal acts that they will be caught and punished for them, we're, we're alleviating those restrictions. But you don't have the political will on any other side to stop that. And you have a, a sort of narrative of victimization. This goes back to the Jesse Smollett. The criminals themselves are treated as victims. It's like only hurt people hurt people. Okay, there's there's an element of truth to that, clearly. But we're in a crisis point if you've got 12-year-olds sticking guns in people's faces and taking their car and driving off when there's an infant in the back. Um, these things are happening in cities. And, and in San Francisco, the pushback is finally coming, but it has to come from the Democrats because they control the city. And they are going to try to get rid of their horrible DA who doesn't want to prosecute crimes. But it actually takes the people on the left side of the aisle in these crime-ridden places to oust the bad guys. And they're not always clear of doing it. Philadelphia had an opportunity to get rid of its um, uh lead prosecutor, they didn't take that opportunity either. So that's why I think you see a lot of cynics on the right saying, well, you live in that city, you know, you chose this, but we don't, that, that's to me a sign of dysfunction politically in these cities, that there is no real alternative political voice that can say these things and actually make change happen. 
Right. And I think to, to pull back from the domestic stuff to the international stuff, the reason that this struck me was everybody said the term that was being used, it was kind of like a cliche after two days, was that somehow we had lost deterrence. Not everybody, but I mean, it was a sort of foreign policy line about Putin. Like we had lost deterrence. NATO's, the existence of NATO was not only not a deterrent, but was somehow a, a what would you call it? A, a, pro, a provocation, provocation, right? Okay. Um, but we lost deterrence. And of course, that's true, but it's not because NATO's a provocation. It's because NATO stopped being scary. NATO, NATO's existence stopped seeming like uh, it was raising a cost too high to Putin for him not to gamble on going into Ukraine. And then ultimately, we, of course, lost deterrence because of the way we pulled out of Afghanistan and the fact that we pulled out of Afghanistan. And to be fair to people like us and other people, we said at the time that this was happening that it was going to have some effect very much like this, not that we knew what it was, but that, but that when you make a unilateral decision to withdraw your forces from a situation that is stable, and you pull the cork out and you create a sinkhole or a, you know, you create some kind of a, you know, an effect like that, uh, the consequences are going to be vast, but unknowable. So did we know that Putin would look at Afghanistan and say, I'm going to go into Ukraine six months later? No, we didn't. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I just want to say, you know, I got into all this. My whole career is was because I became a, a neoconservative and was fascinated with it and saw the rightness in it. And the the very simple uh, statement that that was so often repeated in the early days that you don't I haven't heard as much um, around this issue was weakness is provocative. American weakness is provocative. Right. right. And and that is, in, in essence, you know, w w what what it's about. Um, the idea is we don't want to provoke. Strength is how is is how you keep the peace. Right. Well, that's right. Peace through strength was the yes. phrase. Right. And, um, you know, uh, trust, but verify or, you know, or uh, the, yeah, the idea was. Uh, you are, when you are powerful, you can use your power to make other people think twice before they do something bad. And there, there's an ancillary point here, which is, that, again, this criticism of the neoconservatives for being utopians, a lot of which is based on the idea that, you know, that we walked around saying everybody should democratize. Uh, uh, now, Mike Gerson, who wrote the Bush 2005 inaugural, you know, which who proposed that the, you know, that the, the goal should be to democratize the world. Mike Gerson is not a neoconservative. I'm certainly not. He's not even a conservative now anymore whatsoever. But he was basically a Christian evangelical conservative who brought a kind of, uh, you know, um, evangelism evangelism to to this effort and it is true that in the 1980s uh, one of the uh, efforts made by the Reagan State Department under the in part under the uh, direction of my brother-in-law Elliot Abrams was if you were going to go if you were if we were going to 
try to insert ourselves or you know deal with the insurgencies in El Salvador and elsewhere that we were at the same time going to try to help those countries or insist that those countries pursue democratic means of public support have elections do you know not be run by dictatorships to show a, an alternative to the communist you know um efforts that were just simply authoritarian and that was not utopian that was there are processes and procedures there are communists on one side there are sort of dictators without public public support on the other side uh maybe there is an alt there's an option here where people can no longer abide the kind of uh criminality and terrorism being perpetrated by the communists but feel oppressed by the dictators to come up the use the political system to the advantage of the you know uh, of the electorate and Virtue so of it this was belief system yeah. in my view yeah. is its simplicity it is intuitively understood it's a raw hard power calculus when you're talking to the utopian messianic vision is expressed by those who are opposed to neoconservative belief structures because they don't perform raw hard power calculations it, talking to them is like talking to a, a, a professor in a lecture hall it devolves into um you know a really convoluted Marcusian analyses of, uh, you know, how, how uh, systems interact and people behave and what their, their, uh, you know, motivations are and why we have to, you know, th think in five different steps. Whereas to the average voter who doesn't, who maybe doesn't even have a college degree or certainly doesn't think about things in philosophical terms can really wrap their hands around the notion that you, that overwhelming force to suppress a bad actor abroad or at home is a really easy thing to get your hands around. Everything right. else is much more complicated. But you can't just do it in the absence of, 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 a, of, a, of a goal that is not positive. In other words, you know, we, you, you, you fight crime and you try to prevent crime and you try to make sure that there is swift and certain punishment of those who do wrong so that they will not go out and prey on other people. But the idea is if you do this in the right way, people are going to be safer. And life is going to improve. Similarly, you can't go out and, you know, uh, you know, it's like uh, George Washington saying we should not go out in search of monsters to slay. Right. That was the, the end of his uh, farewell address. Um, and that's true. So we shouldn't go out in search of monsters to slay. But if there are monsters that have to be slain, um, the question is, what do you do when the monster's corpse is lying there? Do you do you? just move the corpse and, you know, burn it or something like that and try to make sure that it's not there anymore? Or do you say, okay, in place of the monster, maybe we can help you build something better. Um, should we not have done that? And in, I mean, this is the, this is the interesting criticism of, you know, the democracy efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. Should we not have done what we did? What were, were, uh, were, should it remains an left? article of faith yeah. on the part of people who are uh, uh, opposed, who have recently found their opposition to the Iraq war, frankly, um, that it that it was a complete disaster and utter failure. Why? <laughs> well, that's a whole why? other look, you know, look at the place. Yeah. But that, that that's that, that is a subject of many, many other conversations that we should have. But 
in terms of what Abe was talking about, about 9-11 and the, and the aftermath of 9-11, there has not been a follow-up attack on the United States. Now, you can say that the cost, the cost in blood and treasure was too great in these two wars and that, the, and that it was too much and that maybe in the absence of, you know, if we, if we replayed it and there would have been two major terrorist attacks on the United States instead of none because we didn't go into Iraq, that we would have made the choice not to go into Iraq or maybe not, or maybe we certainly would have made the choice because had we not, and there had been more, we would have gone in anyway at some point at a later moment or something like that. So you can't like run these backwards, but the point is that we didn't go into Afghanistan to democratize Afghanistan. We did not go into Iraq to democratize Iraq, went to Afghanistan to punish the people who attacked us and to make sure that they had no safe harbor. And we went into Iraq because rightly or wrongly, we believed that it was the most important terrorist threat because it possessed weapons of mass destruction that it was going to give to terrorist groups. In neither case was the purpose of going in to democratize them and therefore it all came a cropper. Democratizing them or helping them build democratic institutions was the end result of a victory there, not a defeat. The elections were the result of a victory there, not a defeat, because we couldn't just go in there and then not say, and then walk away, even though there were some people who wanted to and say, okay, we came in, we did what we needed to do, we give this back to you. And then Uday and Kuse end up running Iraq. I mean, I, you know, and then what difference would that make? We already did that, right? We left Iraq in 1991, left Saddam, Hussein in power. Obviously, we weren't going to let him stay in power that time. But we only went in to get to get the Iraq out of Kuwait. We got Iraq out of Kuwait. That was great. And then look what happened as a result of not extirpating the person who had who had made this this war. So again, there's this idea that neoconservatism is utopian and responsible for terrible evils and you know took us down a terrible uh, you know a primrose path and all of that. And as I looked at it and writing this piece, what I saw was a commitment to a very simple precept domestically and abroad, which is that the purpose of government action in dealing with matters of safety is to deter bad actors, not to, not to convert them, not to change them, but to deter bad actors and that their deterrence, it's very simple and it's actually kind of modest. Right. Because uh, the other conservative idea that was abroad in the 50s and 40s, 50s and 60s was rollback, was the idea that if we, you know, we are facing the Soviet Union and instead of containing them, which was the term used by George Kennan in the long telegram that basically, uh, you know, created the, the Cold War, let's say, or or the American posture in the Cold War, instead of containing them, um, where they were, that we should actually go in evangelically and liberate them, right? We should liberate them in Hungary. We should liberate them in, in some of these places. And we didn't do that. And we we let people live, you know, we were in a position where we said the cost for us, the cost of doing something like that to liberate Hungary from the Soviets was too high. It was too high. It was too dangerous. It was too risky. And tragically, we could not do anything about it. Now, in the late 40s, when Greece and Turkey were being threatened by, by, by uh, communist, by the possibility of communist takeover, 
we did intervene and we did interfere and we did stop it from happening, but they hadn't, but the battle lines had not yet been drawn. And those were territories that had not yet been seized, you know, even as part of Yalta or whatever had not been, you know, there was no Soviet sphere of influence in which they fit. And we did not allow that to happen. And, um, uh, but we, but, but another thing is that it's, it's, there's a highly ideological aspect. This is something that I remember being very frustrated by when I was doing grad school work on this is that the long telegram in particular was very ideological in so far as it put a lot of emphasis on Soviet ideology and communist ideology. Um, And there's still a lot of this abroad, this very highly ideological assumptions about what Vladimir Putin is up to, for example, in, in his region and his messianic vision of a greater Russia and what have you. And that if we could only extirpate him, then everything would change. And this is something I've spent most of my academic career arguing against, this notion that ideational changes in the Kremlin, or ideational changes anywhere generally, uh, alter the calculus uh, for policymakers in a way that um, that changes, you know, changes how we should approach these strategic efforts to contain and deter conflict. And that's totally wrong. The notion here that a change in leadership in the Kremlin would force the Kremlin to abandon to Russia, to abandon its permanent strategic national interests in the near abroad, what it defines as its near abroad, of which Ukraine is a part, the former Soviet republics generally, uh, is just false. You need to change the calculus for them by making it right. much more harder to achieve those objectives. Well, to defend Kennedy, so for the people more, like Lindsey yeah. Graham who are saying, oh, if somebody just put a bullet in between this guy's eyes, everything would be yeah. better. That's false. It's wrong. Right. Somebody's coming right. up behind him with the exact same understanding of Russia's national objectives. Right. Well, again, to defend the long telegram and its ideological perspective, uh, what was different about the Soviet Union from Russian history, even though there were there was much continuity. Stephen Kotkin points that out in this very interesting interview with David Remnick. People have been talking about in The New Yorker. It was um, it was uh, Richard Pipes's great point about Russia, about Soviet history, that it was not discontinuous. Uh, from Russian history, that it was not a break. However, Russia did have this overlay of international communism, and it did seek to export communism way beyond its near abroad, right? I mean, Cuba, Nicaragua, Angola, uh, all over, you know, sort of testing the bounds, you know, the communist international. So there were, there were these two faces of it. And Kennan's idea was for the Soviet Union, as a regime, if you contained it, eventually, he said, it would fall apart of its own contradictions. And that was the surprising prophecy that came true because nobody thought it was going to happen, even though a lot of people were great believers in the wisdom of the long telegram, meaning you had to hold them in place. But they just seemed too powerful, too strong, too nuclear. And there, you know, there was no internal logic to what was going to make them collapse. And we didn't know that they were going to make themselves collapse through Glasnost and Perestroika, that they were going to somehow take themselves apart. We didn't know that was going to happen, but he sort of did. But that wasn't Russia. Russia was still there, right? It was only 10 years later that a former KGB guy takes over and starts this process that then leads 20 years later to the invasion of Ukraine and led eight years later to the invasion of Georgia and then you know, six years after that to the invasion of Crimea and now to the wholesale invasion of Ukraine. And the answer, as Noah, as you indicate, the counter offensive to that is deterrence. And 
I'm going to say this just to be annoying to people who are happy listening to this, uh, but, you know, like Donald Trump, the attacks on NATO in the late part of the last decade were of no help, were of no help. The idea that we had the president of the United States questioning the viability, the need, the necessity and the virtue of NATO were part and parcel of what led Vladimir Putin to believe that America and the West would not deter him if he went into Ukraine. And it's not just Biden. Biden was terrible. And Biden is the the Afghanistan thing was obviously far worse because we didn't pull out of NATO. But the idea that an American president would go would, would attack the very foundation of the world order that America helped create um, was very destructive. And so, yes, I've now so you can now email me and say, you know, are you happy now with Biden? So that's why you wanted Biden, blah, blah, blah. None of which is true. But anyway, that's my piece. Neoconservatism of vindication. Um, uh, take a look at it at commentary.org. And we'll be back. It's been a, a ridiculously long podcast. So we'll be back tomorrow uh, for a Christina Noah. It's John Pod Horitz here. Keep the candle burning.